Section 3. The Middle Ages, AD 500 to 1500. The Middle Ages are normally divided into two distinct periods. First, the early period, 500 to 1050, and second, the high or late period, 1050 to 1500. The pejorative term, dark, is often used to refer to the early period. The reason for this is more religious or philosophical than historical. Many non-Christian historians found these ages dark because Hellenism was absent and Christianity became more dominant. The, quote, darkness, end quote, then is the, quote, Christian, end quote, interlude between the collapse of the old Greco-Roman culture and its revival at about the time Peter Abelard, 1079-1142, reintroduced Aristotle into non-Byzantine Europe. This term, quote, dark ages, is a loose concept which any man may define according to his own prejudice. Some retreat from the term, quote, dark ages, end quote, began when the term, quote, medieval period, end quote, was used to indicate that at least some culture was in existence before the Renaissance. William Carroll Bark reminds us that it was the frontier spirit that dominated this early period. He pointed out that it was, quote, a working, striving society, impelled to pioneer, forced to experiment, often making mistakes, but also drawing upon the energies of its people much more fully than its predecessors, and eventually allowing them much fuller and freer scope for development. That conditions, events and peoples came together as they did in the early Middle Ages was extremely fortunate for the present heirs of the Western tradition. End quote. The idea of, quote, darkness, unquote, has also been postulated by several medical historians as though there were a clear break between Greco-Roman medicine and that practiced during the early medieval period. For example, Charles Singer wrote that during this early period, quote, men lacked a motive for living. Monkish medicine had no thought save for the immediate relief of the patient. All theoretical knowledge was permitted to lapse, end quote. Lately, however, this view has been seriously challenged. For example, George Sarton has rightly pointed out that those, quote, dark ages, end quote, were, quote, never so dark as our ignorance of them, end quote. The reason for this tension was due, in large measure, to Aristotle, who compartmentalized medicine into two distinct categories, namely the practice of medicine, the art, and the theory of medicine, the science. In his study entitled Ancient Medicine, Ludwig Edelstein rightly defines the result of this when he tells us that, quote, Greek science advocated at all times assumptions about the invisible world of law and order. It was theoretical rather than practical, end quote. The Romans, being more practical than the Greeks, did not take to the Greek tomes on theoretical medicine. Pliny the Elder, AD 23 or 24 to 79, laments the fact that many Roman medical practitioners in his day could not even read the Greek medical works. He reeled against Roman physicians, saying that they, quote, acquired their knowledge from our dangers, making experiments at the cost of our lives. Only a physician can commit homicide with complete impunity, end quote. It was probably this dichotomy which gave rise to that humorous distinction often made between Greece and Rome, namely that the Greeks were famous for their brains and the Romans for their drains.
The failure of the humanistic worldview was in its ability to bring the practical and the theoretical together. Indeed, given its presuppositions, it could never have done so. It was largely due to this failure that Edelstein concluded that ancient science was in a state of serious decay by AD 200. The important point to be made here is that Christianity, divided into its eastern and western halves, the western, or Latin half, stressed the practical, while the eastern, or Greek half, stressed the theoretical. This division, however, was only partially true. Due to a common faith, particularly in the biblical doctrines of the Imago Dei and Agape, compassion for the sick was that common feature of both Eastern and Western Christianity that manifested itself in a manner previously unknown in Greco-Roman medical ethics. We have already seen that in the East, the Church established the first hospitals and charitable institutions. These gave asylum even to lepers, who were hopeless and helpless outcasts of society. These institutions continue to flourish throughout the Middle Ages, even under Turkish rule, 1453 to 1850. The Turks, unlike their Christian subjects, disliked activities such as the caring for the sick and the practice of medicine. It is evident, therefore, that the Eastern Greek Christians were not completely given to the theory of medicine, giving more attention to the practice of medicine as an art. One cannot consider the early Middle Ages without giving some attention to Augustine of Hippo, 354-430. Adolf Harnack does not overstate the case when he points out that Augustine's importance in the West in the history of the Church and dogma lies in his giving to the West a system of ethics that was specifically Christian. The Greco-Roman view was that history was an endless cycle. To the Greeks, the origin of everything that existed was constant strife resulting in chaos, which brought about a new beginning. The soul of man was caught up in ceaseless transmigration. Quote, War is the father and king of all. Strife is justice, end quote, said Heraclitus. This pagan belief had left man facing the world without God, with only his free will. Even this eventually disappeared, and man's hope came to rest in luck, fortuna. It was Augustine's teaching on the sovereignty of God that gave man a new birth of freedom. C.N. Cochrane explains Augustine's contribution as follows, quote, With the disappearance from Christian thought of the classical antithesis between man and the environment, there disappears also the possibility of such a conflict. The destiny of man is, indeed, determined, but neither by a soulless mechanism nor by the fiat of an arbitrary or capricious power external to himself. For the laws which govern physical nature, like those which govern human nature, are equally the laws of God. End quote. Augustine's sermons abound with illustrations portraying Christ as the divine physician, Christus Medicus, and the healer of all mankind's spiritual diseases. The human physician, then, manifests the spirit of agape, of Christ-like compassion in his care of the sick, especially the poor and destitute, without any thought of reward or fear of contagion. Many of Augustine's letters are written to physicians who happen to be close personal friends, 
In one letter, he mentions his friend Gennadius, a physician as a man, quote, of devout mind, kind and generous heart, and untiring compassion, as shown by his care of the poor, end quote. Mary Keenan tells us that, quote, the brief glimpses which Augustine affords of his friends and acquaintances among the physicians of his day reveals them as men of noble character and of high professional ideals, end quote. Augustine, in one of his sermons, actually encouraged the theoretical study of medicine. He even went so far as to categorically state that it would be cruelty indeed if the physician wished only to practice his art, apart from a theoretical knowledge of the subject. His one and only criticism was of the anatomists, who, in their cruel zeal for science, practiced dissection, not only on the bodies of the dead by robbing graves, but sometimes on the living as well. One of Augustine's great legacies is the special care he gave to handicapped children. According to him, God created each child in his own image. It was God who gave the miracle of life at conception, formed each body in the womb, and providentially brought it into the world. All newborn children, therefore, were to be preserved, irrespective of the circumstances of their conception, physical condition, or mental ability. Even the child born of a prostitute, he contended, is sometimes adopted by God as his own son or daughter. A child born of adultery is no less a creature of God than any other. Almost from the beginning, the early Christians, and later in the early Middle Ages, the Church, made it known that there was an alternative to infanticide and the aborting of the unborn. The alternative was that Christians would take the unwanted children into their own homes. Monastic records indicate that defective and unwanted children were often left to the care of the church. It has often been charged by modern medical historians that the Church of the Middle Ages was opposed to the practice of medicine. This is an error that is found in many modern histories of medicine, which otherwise appear to be quite scholarly. After listing the various church councils and the edicts that followed, one scholar concluded that, quote, The general effect was, unfortunately, not only to stop the monks from practising, but to extend the special odium of these decrees to the whole medical profession, end quote. This is only a half-truth. Many modern texts on medical history contradict each other when naming the councils in which this prohibition was supposedly decreed. The same contradiction also applies to the types of clergy. An excellent example of these errors is found in Andrew Dixon White's book, A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom. Quote, One of the main objections developed in the modern ages against anatomical studies was the maxim that, quote, the church abhors the shedding of blood, end quote. On this ground, in 1248, the Council of Le Mans forbade surgery to monks, Many other councils did the same. So deeply was this idea rooted in the mind of the universal church that, for over a thousand years, surgery was considered dishonourable. T.C. Albert, in his book, contradicts White when he states that it was at the Council of Tours that this quote, sinister and perfidious unquote, ecclesia aborhet a sanguine was decreed. It soon became apparent that, in the midst of this scholarly quagmire of confusion and inaccuracy, one would be forced to leave these secondary sources altogether and turn to the primary sources for help. This would be next to impossible for most of us to attempt. Fortunately, Professor Darrell Amundsen has done this for us in an excellent and scholarly study he has entitled, quote, Medical Canon Law 
on medical and surgical practice by the clergy, end quote. During the 12th century, there was a, quote, shift in values within the traditional scheme of the cardinal vices, end quote. During the 12th century, there was a, quote, shift in values within the traditional scheme of the cardinal vices, end quote. The sin of pride as the foremost of vices was gradually giving way to the sin of avarice. The various church councils attempted to curb this vice of avarice. It was never aimed directly at the medical profession, even though it did affect it to some extent. One scholar summed it up as follows, quote, In practice, clerics had engaged in secular pursuits from the time of the early church onwards, and gradually, in theory, the canonists came to apply one criterion, that is, of motive, whether such work was undertaken from a genuine need, necessitas, or selfish gain, terpe lucrum, end quote. The prohibitions contained in the various councils during the late Middle Ages applied only to the regular clergy, that is, those who had taken a vow to withdraw from secular affairs. Amundsen concludes, quote, The specific prohibition against the study and practice of medicine did not apply to a sizable segment of the clergy, and it is hardly a wholesale condemnation of the practice of medicine by clerics, end quote. What shall we say about the, quote, sinister and perfidious, end quote, Ecclesia Obhorat, a sanguine, which is sometimes attributed to the Council of Tours and sometimes to Canon 18 of Lateran IV. According to C.H. Talbot, it is no more than a literary ghost. He explains it as follows. The famous phrase Ecclesiae Abhorata Sanguine, which has been quoted by every writer on medicine for the past 200 years as the reason for the separation of surgery from medicine, is not to be found either in the text of the Council of Tours, 1163 AD, to which they all attribute it, or in any other church council. It cannot be found in the decretals of the popes, nor in any of the medieval commentaries on canon law. It is a literary ghost. End quote. Talbot goes on to explain that it owes its existence to Quesnay, the uncritical historian of the Faculty of Surgeons at Paris, who, in 1774, translated the French into Latin and inserted it into the text. No earlier source for this sentence can be found. We trust this fallacy will, from now on, be laid to rest permanently. <laughs>